break out your wireframes and heat up those Git repos. We're ready to tackle topics ranging from accessibility to front-end design, user experience, and beyond. You're listening to the Drunken UX Podcast with your hosts, Michael Feenan and Aaron Hill. Hello, everybody. You're listening to the Drunken UX Podcast. I am your host, Michael Feenan, and your other other host, Aaron Hill, uh, is out of town today, so you get a double dosing of me. Well, a single dosing, but uh, the whole show is it's just me. Um, so I apologize in advance for that, but we'll try to make it as fun and entertaining as humanly possible. First and foremost, this is episode number 113 for April 25th, 2022, and we are going to be talking about the application of the Shannon Weaver model of communication to web development. This is a subject for me that's very near and dear to my heart. Um, it's something that I've been doing a lot of research into and is going to be the subject of an upcoming book um, that I am working on. And so I wanted to dig into this and share it and kind of explain why I feel this is so valuable, what makes it matter a lot, and how it fits into the design space, user experience, how it dovetails with these ideas like doing less better and kind design. This is sort of at the nexus of so many of these conversations. So I'm going to take today and kind of dig into that. Uh, first and foremost, if you are enjoying the Drunken UX podcast, and I certainly hope that you are, please go check us out over on Twitter or Facebook at slash Drunken UX or Instagram at slash Drunken UX podcast. If you're feeling a little squirrely and want to help support the show, we do have a Patreon. Just go to drunkenux.com slash support and it'll get you right there. To sort of lubricate the conversation... I am going to be chatting while having a sip of the Glenlivet Caribbean Reserve. Um, this is a no-age statement scotch, meaning we don't know how old it is. Um, I would say it's a little on the young side. Um, it's probably a blend of like a maybe a 6, an 8, and a 10, with it maybe being predominantly an 8. It definitely has a younger flavor to it. Um, Glenlivet is a Speyside Scotch. It's naturally sweeter um, by virtue of that. And being a Caribbean reserve, what they're basically saying is, we finished this in rum casks. Now, this is not unusual. Uh, the Balvenie 12, or I'm sorry, Balvenie 14 Caribbean cask, same kind of situation. The Glenfiddich 21 Grand Reserva, exact same kind of setup. Um, but those are older, more mature scotches. Um, and so the, the, flavor of them and the finish of them is pretty drastically different from this. Not to say it's bad. I do actually kind of like it. For the price especially, it's only like 40 bucks a bottle. So it's a really cheap way to get into like a distinctly double matured type of scotch that has added flavor. Um, I say the, the scotch tastes young. It's got kind of a, a, a bright oaky flavor to it a little bit that then gives way to some of these, what what I like to refer to as vaguely tropical flavors, which kind of means a little brown sugar, a little caramel, but also like this sort of maybe artificial coconutty kind of flavor, um, that young vanilla flavor that comes with uh, uh, younger scotches. Um, the, the flavors are vague to me. Um like, I don't get, like, a big pineapple hit. It's not, like, tropical in that sense. But it does play off the rum cask. So you do get that sweetness. You do get that brown sugar note. 
and I think it does make it better. I think this is a better Glenlivet than the Glenlivet 12. Um, I think most Glenlivet is better than the Glenlivet 12. Uh, so take from that what you may. Uh, orange bright bottle, easy to find, 40 bucks. Um, great little sipper for this evening. Okay, so I'm digging into the Shannon Weaver model of communication, and what in the hell does that mean, Michael? So I mentioned this is a subject kind of near and dear to my heart. So I'm going to just kind of give you some foundation here. I came out of college as a communication major. I've alluded to this in the past, and I enjoy talking about how I was a theater major specifically, or theater emphasis in this case. Um, but my degree does say communication. Um, I've always really valued that education and that background because communication is intrinsic to everything we do in web development from the design and research side to the building and creation of it and presentation of it. Communication is vital to what we do as business people, as anybody trying to create something for somebody else. One of the very first concepts you're going to learn in any like COM 101 class is this notion of the Shannon Weaver model of communication. Um, this is sort of, you know, a, a mother theory, so to speak. It's a foundational theory. Um, it actually comes out of a very uh, mathematical type of uh, communication model out of uh, uh, 19, late 1940s, 1948, 49. Um, originally, this was Claude Shannon and Warren Weaver that put this together, um, uh, that comes out of their work. Uh, Shannon worked for uh, Bell Labs. And so this model was actually designed to help them understand and address actual problems in the telecommunications infrastructure of the time. So this notion of, you know, today with cell phones and all of this, and even 20 years ago, we didn't have this notion of, hey, I'm going to make a cross-country call, and it's going to sound crappier. There's going to be interference. There's going to be line noise. Um, you know, these notions of long-distance phone calls and having to connect you and what happens when you get bounced around different infrastructures. This was a huge challenge uh, for the telephone industry all the way up until we started digitizing services, like literally going digital. Um, and so they came up with this model. This model was you have two ends to a communication channel, the sender and the receiver. The sender has a message or a transmission that goes through some form of media uh, through a channel. Uh, that channel generates reception to your receiver. And then in between all that, you can have noise, which can muck up the signal and later, uh, Norbert Wiener uh, added a concept of feedback. So you create a communication cycle then through feedback, and it goes both ways. Um, make it, you know, two-directional. This can be a very unidirectional model, too. If you're giving a presentation, for instance, that's a very one-way model of communication. Much of what we do online is very one-way, unless you're building applications or, or social media tools. Um, streaming platforms, you know, Twitch comes to mind. The feedback cycle for most websites doesn't necessarily come into play, or it's a very stretched out feedback cycle. I love this model. There are others. I love this one, and I particularly love it because of how it gets into what we do as web developers. Um, I 
am a huge advocate of the fact that people are our goal. Um, when I worked for the university several years ago, I had my own office and had two monitors, desk, the whole nine, like I was an actual, you know, professional human being. And I would sit behind those monitors, do all my work. I would take my phone calls, answer my emails. If I didn't try, I could go all day without seeing another human being's face. But I hated that. When I would get an email that certain a certain department needs help editing some text to make it look right for their page, I could send them an email with some screenshots or a little video demonstrating how to do what they want. Or I could get up off my butt, walk a little ways across campus to another building, and talk to them face-to-face. And I always cherished that interaction because it was very important to me that the people understood that I was a person as well, that I wasn't just this, you know, man behind the curtain, to use a very Kansas kind of metaphor there. Um, But it's bigger than that. At the end of the day, I'm writing code to build a website. I am a human being creating something. Our content managers were all human beings writing content. They weren't writing it for themselves. They're not writing it for Google. They're not writing it for the ephemeral cloud. They're creating that. We are creating those things for another human being to digest, to intake, and to do something with, to learn something, to take an action, to buy something, to solve a problem, whatever. So. This model to me is valuable because we get to think about that sender and receiver as actual human beings, not just computers. So let me break down this model just a hair. So I said, we've got a few components to this that are very intrinsic. Sender, encoder slash transmitter, channel, decoder, receiver, and noise. Um, The encoder also can include the message there, so depending on whose model you're reading, but it's the same, same model. Um, Let's leave feedback out of it for the moment. So we understand the sender. The sender is me. The sender is the content person. The sender is the person who put the thing on the page of value. It's not the server. It's not the machine. It's not the wire. The receiver is the person on their phone, on their tablet, in front of their computer, who has searched or found or, uh, you know, came to very deterministically that page, that content, that tool. So. What is everything else in the equation? So the message is the stuff. What is on that page? That's the message. That's the thing you're trying to get through. The channel is the internet. This one is... I've talked to other people about how they determine this. And, and, you know, if you use the idea of the encoder-decoder instead of the message and channel, the, the theory is, well, the computer is the encoder. And I don't... I don't agree with that. Uh, The message goes through the channel that is the internet to get to the receiver. The encoder decoder is just the browser. That's all it is. And noise. Noise is where I bring this home. Because noise on a phone line can literally get in the way. It's the static. You're on your cell phone driving down the highway um, talking hands-free like a responsible person. But as you're going down that highway, you're bouncing around uh, tower signals and you get choppy digital audio, right? You get signal drop. That's actual noise in that message that makes it hard to understand what the other person is saying or makes it hard for them to understand what you're saying. For us, 
in the web industry. Noise is everything that isn't the message. What do I mean by that? Noise is all your design. Noise is the fancy web font you decided to use. Noise is every single micro interaction that you add to a button or a modal or anything else. Interstitial pop-ups are noise. Anything, a top alert banner is noise. Cookie compliance is noise. All of it. Every bit of that is noise. The perfect web page is one that has nothing on it except the answer the person needs. That's it. Now, we add all of this other stuff because we do recognize design is important. Design has other functions besides just being noise. It does add value. Micro interactions add value. They can make things easier to use. All noise is not necessarily created equal in those instances, or the items, while they may generate noise, they may generate other value outside of that that can offset anything that's happened with the noise. It's all about balance. It's all about figuring out how we take all of this design, all of these, uh, all this UX design, all the technical stuff, how, and how do we balance those things? We have to have a database backing an application, for instance, and the latency that it takes sometimes to query one of those databases and return an answer is a type of noise. That's a problem. But we need the database. Like we, we need that to solve the overriding problem. So we accept those little bits of latency and try to optimize it in other ways. We'll introduce other noise like placeholders, like animated placeholders or an Ajax little, if you remember this little Ajax uh, loader icons, um, CSS animation loader icons, things like that. That's noise, but it is serving a communications purpose to help attenuate the signal a little bit. So, as we look at these things, we start to think about how do we apply this in our work, in our design. You know, there's always this instinct to do lots, to add a bunch of animation, to add a bunch of color, to make things big, to use interactive videos and all of this kind of stuff on pages. And abstractly, we can look at those things and say, oh yeah, that's nice design, but it also begs the question of, is it getting in the way? Are we doing too much? Salt comes to mind. I think I've used this uh, this metaphor before. Design is like salt. Micro-interactions are like salt. You add it to make it better, to make it taste better, but you can add too much. You can go overboard. And so you end up with these sites. Good example. Have you ever gone looking for a recipe for something? And in the process of just trying to get a recipe, you just need to know what's the right temperature to cook this at and for how long. I'm going to do my own seasoning and everything else. I just need a reference point for the, the time and temp. And you find exactly the recipe that is going to help you with that. And you click it in Google uh, on the Google search report results page. And you land on a page full of ads that pops up a 50% off coupon you don't need that asks you to subscribe to their newsletter and then says, by the way, Here's my grandmother's story of this dish from when they immigrated from Eastern Europe in the 1920s. All of that's noise. You're not there for any of that. None of that changes. 
the goal of the user. We talk about, you know, user journeys. What's the user journey? Somebody coming to a cooking site for a recipe is there for the recipe. The story might help your Google results, might help other things like that, but it's not what the user is there for. It's in the way. That's noise. Those are the things we need to look at and resist as an industry when somebody says, hey, this is how we want to approach this. You know what? If that's the case, that's fine. If you want to put that whole story and all of that stuff in that page for the two people who care, put it below the recipe. Make the actual recipe be the first thing people see so that they can solve their problem immediately. Again, you attenuate that noise a little bit. So while the story still adds noise, you've attenuated it down so that it's not interfering with the message that they are trying to receive, that the message that the person who wrote that recipe is sending. Our senders in that sense are also very on demand, right? Somebody who creates that content isn't hand-serving that content on demand once people show up to the site. We then rely on the technology to do that. That's also noise. Because what if that fails? What if you're using an API service to pull in something dynamically? That failure creates noise. Those things, everything that we add, every picture that gets added into a page might be beautiful. It might be a fan fantastic photograph but it's also in the way, presuming it's not actually related to the content, like a chart or something along those lines. This gets us to this notion of things like accessibility. So I, I mentioned, you know, this the Shannon Weaver model and this notion of how noise interferes with our channel and our message. This gets back to these concepts like the best pages to use, I said earlier, are the ones that have nothing but the words that the person needs. Realistically, we know we won't do that. But the simpler we can keep things, besides making them easier to maintain, easier to deploy, you reduce the odds that something is going to get in the way of a user using a screen reader or using keyboard controls. You know, when things bounce around, when stuff gets injected into the content flow dynamically, especially thinking about ads and interstitials, pop-ups, things like this, modal windows, these things can be an annoyance to you or me, but they can also create insurmountable barriers for somebody using assistive technology if they are not engineered well. And even if they are engineered well, they are still getting in the way of that user and likely getting in their way much worse than it might for you or I. We have to consider these factors. It's a good motivation to look at what we're doing and say, how simply can we build this? to get our branding across and get our look and feel across and our voice across, but make that message come through as simply as possible with the least amount of risk to anything getting in the way of it. Beyond accessibility, I mentioned kind design. Kind design is a topic we have referred to many times on this show. It's this idea of avoiding things like dark patterns, avoiding things like hostile design so that you produce a delightful experience for that user so that you create something with no intent to interrupt them or to trick them or to make them do something that they didn't get there to do. Again, all of those things, all of those hostile design patterns are incredible sources of noise, incredible. 
because they are constantly trying to get a user to do something that they don't intend to do. You're basically trying to like go to a loud bar and talk somebody's ear off and get them drunk enough so that they tip the bartender an extra $40 instead of four and hope they'll make that mistake. You know, it's, it's this idea of going into a place and having somebody distract you while the other person comes along and picks your pocket. It's not kind design. It's there. The distraction, that need to pull you aside is intentionally and fundamentally designed to harm you. And if we can eliminate those sources of noise, we improve the odds that we are engaging in truly useful kind design. Kind design hates noise. Kind design is opposed to noise because its ethical precept is that we are going to go into this and make an experience that's accessible to people, that's inclusive for folks, and avoids the pratfalls of, hey, we're going to put a ton of marketing stuff on here. Hey, we're going to just bombard every user with subscription demands um, or give us all your info. You know, let us use all, sell all your stuff to third parties. That's noise. They don't need that. That's nothing that helps them accomplish their goal. They don't need you to sell information to third party uh, users so that they can use your product. That's your goal. That's your messaging to help you. And so that's what we are working on trying to fight in this model. So let's kind of dig into this a, a bit and kind of think about how, how we might apply it. There's one kind of good example. It's, it's by far not the best example, but a site that has really focused on how do we minimize the amount of noise while maximizing the chance that a sender can get a message to a receiver through this great channel of the internet is Craigslist. Craigslist has what might be called a, a brutalist design. Brutalism is a, a design technique. Um, some um, might also say it's just minimalist. And I mentioned it's far from perfect. Um, it is frequently frustrating. You will oftentimes find uh, links to things that don't have required details or have misleading details, things like that. Um, that's going to happen. And that's more a consequence of the content input abilities in many cases. But the page is designed to be as absent distractions as possible. You get your pictures, you get a map, you get some standard details for the item you're trying to buy or sell, and you get a section for a description. When you land on the site in general, all the homepage is is a bunch of links that are categorized and give you locations around you to click on. They've done a good job trying to focus in on this is what our role is as Craigslist for the user, and we're going to get out of the way as much as humanly possible. I'm not going to, I'm not calling their design good. I'm not saying minimalism is the only way to go with this. I just think that it kind of embodies a little bit of that intentionally or not, where they're saying, let's try as hard as we can to make this as simple. And if you put up a good ad, you're almost guaranteed that the person reading it is going to get everything they need from a detail standpoint. This stands, I think, in diametric opposition to a similar site like eBay eBay introduces a similar model of wanting you to sell things through their site, but their site is loaded with banner ads, 
they're constantly trying to direct you to other things. When you go look at a uh, a listing before you even get to the description, you have to go past similar sponsored items, sponsored items that customers also bought. You have to jump through all these hoops, and because they also allow people to upload their own HTML, every description while on Craigslist, the descriptions can just be good or bad based on what people type in. On eBay, the addition of users' own HTML to create their own little sort of detail pages is disruptive to that UX. It's disruptive to somebody who is expecting to see descriptive information in a certain way. Now they have to figure out, well, what was this random seller thinking when they built this description area? Are the pictures restated? Did they add a tab to something? Is it buried below needless information about the person selling it? There's all of these things in the way. You scroll down the page. After you get past the descriptions, bam, you're back to sponsored items based on your recent views. Explore more sponsored options, year printed. Explore more sponsored options, language. These different categories start getting thrown in. Then you get related sponsored items. Is there a recurring theme in all of these? People are paying eBay to highlight their items on the thing that you're looking at. And so eBay has, as a force of nature, started putting those in everywhere. To the point that there's, on any given item page, there is more sponsored content on that page than content about the thing being sold. This is what I'm talking about when I get into noise. They use content carousels. I hate content carousels. Everybody knows I hate content carousels. They introduce noise on the interaction front because they all work differently. They hide information. There's nothing a carousel does better than hide information. That's what they're designed to do, to put stuff off screen. I'm wound up on this, obviously, a little bit. But these two sites that are doing very similar things show off the different ways that this communication model can impact what you think about your UX design. You can go one route, which is, to maximize a visitor's access to your interface and to the content, or you can maximize the things people are paying you to do to get in the way and to create that noise and to ensure that people don't see what they want to see. I think one of the reasons that this is a hot topic for me, especially these days, is as I talk to people about different ways that they build websites and what their goals are and, and you know what they're chasing as a business and, and building to support that stuff. I realize that you know we throw around a lot of words, so to speak. We, we will say things like, oh well, we're going to use responsive design. Oh, we're going to build a pattern library and we've, you know we've got this design system in place. We're using these tools or you know, oh, we've got a whole team they're super into design thinking and all of this. And these things are all well and good, but we are, I think, painfully lacking in guiding philosophy for how to build our sites and and the things that like really justify how we approach you know these kinds of things. We go you know the to take like an analog, we can go into the meat space and and think about industries like actual 
you know, industrial product design, for instance. And, you know, a concept like design thinking, that's not unique to, uh, to the web world. That existed decades and decades and decades ago. And it was used as sort of that fundamental, uh, process for approaching things like industrial design to create a problem solving, uh, system that puts people at sort of the center of it and draws from different design toolkits in order to say help people solve problems, innovate on what we are creating and help build systems and tools and places that can learn and evolve and get better over time. We get into this as a way to do things like get rid of problems in our processes to find solutions that are focused on building a strategic framework around what we are trying to do. This stuff is all missing in the web right now. We have some concepts we understand. We talk about things like, oh yeah, we should avoid hostile design. Yeah, but that's just a word. That's, or a pair of words anyway. That's just a thing to do. Oh, we should be accessible. Well, okay, that's one goal, yes. And then we come up with these notions of, well, yeah, we're going to be inclusive about it. We're going to use inclusive design. And that is a process by which we will build something. Yes, it does help us expand our ideas of accessibility beyond simple you know, make it useful on a screen reader, make it useful to somebody with motor uh, control problems or, or color blindness. Inclusive design gets into things like, let's make sure we get the right languages on the site for our audiences. Let's make sure that we have the reading level of our content appropriate for our audience and things like that. That's all true. But it still isn't getting big enough. We need some kind of of design philosophy to anchor our work to that provides shape and form to our decision-making process. And that helps provide a certain amount of articulation to these ideas. Like, well, why do we want to actually do inclusive design? Why do we want to be accessible? Yes. It's good for those audiences. Yes. It's the right thing to do. These same thing uh, we say all of the same stuff when uh, Aaron and I talk about kind design. These are the same types of words and phrases we use. But the justification then builds when we anchor it to a communications model where we say we're doing this explicitly because noise is a problem. We're doing this because we have a sender of information and a receiver of information, and we need to make sure we keep that channel clear of all the other things that get in the way. And we do that through accessible design. We do that through inclusive design. We do that by practicing a lack of hostile design. We, those things become the means to the end. And the end is a noise-free signal for that receiver. There is sort of a, a terminal point for this. And I still, I, I, I will continue to prefer the phrase kind design, but I think there's another way to frame this that's maybe a little more articulate, I guess. And it's the notion of frictionless design. And all frictionless design is about is this sort of 
lack of noise. When a user can get to your site, find what they need, get that information, enjoy themselves, and leave without being badgered about all kinds of, you know, give us your email address, click this thing, get all this supporting material, whatever the case is, sign up for an account. You know, a good here's a good example, right? Oh, I found an online store that has the one widget I need to finish this project. And so I'm going to buy it and I'm going to, I'm going to put it to my cart. The, the price is right. Great. I hit the buy button and then they say, cool. So start making your account now. Well, I don't need an account to buy an item. Let me check out as a guest. Don't get in my way by forcing me. I didn't come here to make an account. I might do it anyway if I choose to, but don't require me to do it because I may never, never want to come back here and buy anything from you again. And like the privacy laws, GDPR, CCPA, and and these things, maybe I don't want to give you my information to store on the chance that you have a data breach five years from now and that information gets out. Don't make me do that. That's friction. That is actively injecting friction into an experience. Frictionless design occurs kind of as a, it's not so much a Goal. It's not something you would do like inclusive design. It's something that occurs as a result of those things. You can't measure friction somewhat, but it does get to things like, you know, we've talked about web vitals in the past. Um, web vitals are being used as sort of a means of quantifying uh, things that impact UX. Well, what are those things? Stuff like, you know, most meaningful or first contentful paint um, and things like that. These notions of it takes too long to load this page. And I use that word latency earlier. Latency is friction as a result of that. So you want to minimize that element of your process. Uh, so if we can get to largest contentful paint in under two and a half seconds, then we're reducing the friction of waiting on that content. If you've got first input delay of under a tenth of a second, then you're creating a good experience and not creating friction by forcing them to wait two, three seconds before they can input anything on your uh, application. And then cumulative layout score. Friction um, is a very visible part of cumulative layout shift. If things are snapping into place on your page and constantly moving things around, what is that doing to your user's eyes who may see the words they need and are trying to read, and then four seconds later, your ads API loads and slams in a 600 pixel by 600 pixel uh, uh, advertisement, shoves everything down, breaks their continuity. That's like, that's a very visceral form of noise then, and in this case, friction. Friction is noise in that situation. So we've created, I mean, we haven't created, we've defined uh, these web vitals vis-a-vis uh, -vis Google to kind of help give us a way of starting to think about ideas of friction in quantifiable terms. And it's not perfect, but it is a starting place, certainly. If your web vitals are not good, then you can reasonably assume that you have a lot of friction happening, that you are creating noise for those users, and you'll start to look at how you pare things down. My favorite phrase, do less better. 
do the least amount of stuff you can do the best you can to serve the goal of your users. You take out a couple giant images, you unload a bunch of JavaScript that isn't relevant to the page. Suddenly, largest contentful paint is hitting way faster. That first input delay gets cut in half because now you're not loading a bunch of JavaScript that maybe they don't need for that particular um, purpose. You design your site with placeholders for things like ads so that the layout doesn't shift as things load over time. Doing less better ensures that you are minimizing the amount of things that will get in to the channel and disrupt the message that is being sent. These these things, they all sort of orbit each other a little bit. They kind of spin around each other, and you can use some or most or a few, and you can get to a lot of the same places ultimately as long as you're being attentful. That's why all of this does come back to this notion of kind design for us. It's because kind design is the embodiment of all of those things. Accessibility, inclusive design, ethical design, universal design, you know, all of these words. Universal design is another one that comes very much out of the industrial design world for us. And so these ideas, you don't have to know all of them. You don't have to apply all of them. You pick the ones that will facilitate your application of a good communication model to what you're building. We have done a bad job training people as an industry, and this continues. It's It was true 20 years ago, and it's probably going to be true for another 20. One of the best things about building websites is that anybody can get into it as long as they have a computer. And it's fantastic from the standpoint of lowering the bar for anybody in any community to find a way to you know make better money and give themselves skills to change their station in life. But that's also one of the disadvantages because it means sometimes people don't know what they don't know. They don't know what they're missing about different things. A lot of folks, you know, we talk about when we talk about accessibility and the mistakes people make on sites, oftentimes that doesn't come from a place of wanting to build an inaccessible site. That's never somebody's goal. It's just a consequence of not knowing something. And it's really easy to not realize that color contrast is a problem. If you've never been exposed to that, if you've never been introduced to that, then you don't know that you shouldn't uh, you know, be using colors, certain colors together and why that's a problem for people or certain color combinations when we get to the question of things like colorblindness. Those sources of noise in design simply occur because we don't have those good training models in place. And I think that as we lean into what we're doing and as we start thinking about the structure that will really go into our industry, having those kind of base philosophies means we can start people there. When they pick up a computer and type into Google, how do I build a website? Instead of talking about, well, here's how you write a base HTML page and here's what a P tag does. The first thing we want people to learn about is here's how you communicate to somebody. Here is how people receive and process information. Let's talk about that first and give you that level of understanding so that we can use that to introduce you to accessibility before we introduce you to JavaScript. Um, because those concepts 
just knowing they are out there and exist can encourage people to then go out and learn more about them. You're never going to get somebody to learn all the accessibility stuff the minute they pick up their computer. But now they know it's a thing. And they might be like, you know what? I'll I'll throw Wave. I'll throw the Wave plugin in Chrome um, and run that against my site or, or the Axe plugin or Andy or something like that. I'll go get ally.css and use their bookmarklet. And it opens the door to those processes. It just changes where we start having these kinds of conversations. And I think it's important that we stress that. It's important that we have these these talks and, and emphasize these things because that refinement will make a huge difference in the things you create and your ability to have success with them. When we apply ideas like doing less better, we find out all kinds of other truths, like a simple site makes it much easier to test things. So if you want to see, is it better to have the button to the side or at the bottom? Well, if your site is already as simple as it can be to facilitate the process of pushing that button, testing, running a Google Optimize test or something like that to move the button and see if it performs better in one place or another is way easier. Go look at eBay, though. Go look at a listing and figure out, man, how are we going to move stuff around here? We want to test to see if we can get people to use the Make Offer button more. But the Make Offer button is the exact same color as the Buy It Now button. It's in a row of four buttons. It's, you know, it's available even when it's an auction. So now we have to explain to people that you can bid, but you could also make an offer since nobody's bid on it yet. There's all of these little pieces of nuance. Are, are, we want to test to see, do people utilize the description better if we get rid of some of these sponsored item columns? Well, there's so many sponsored item carousels on an eBay listing. Which one are you going to test to remove? Like, and why would you, I mean, you know the answer to that question. You know if we remove the carousels and, and distill the description page, people are going to use it better. But how do we justify that when you're already motivated by the people who are paying you to list your sponsored items with other people's stuff? That makes all of this process harder. It makes it harder for companies. It makes it harder for developers. And it makes it hard to understand which user journey somebody is on. You know, like, what is the persona that eBay has that defines the people who come to items and see the sponsored items, click them, and end up buying one of them. That would be fascinating to know, and, and I don't know the answer to that. And if anybody out there listening has worked at eBay and has some information they can share on that, I would absolutely love to hear it, because I think that would be fascinating. Um, you know, a site that utilizes a similar kind of carousel technique, but isn't quite as obnoxious about it, Netflix comes to mind, right? Netflix uses... Um, horizontal carousels and a similar presentation technique to let you search through what you want to watch. But they aren't injecting a bunch of stuff in the way. Although the fact that the, the uh, different categories are constantly changing is a whole other source of noise unto itself. What's really magical about all of this discussion, I think, is what you can do with it as somebody on the ground making these experiences, building these sites, and trying to further the ideas of accessible design and inclusive design and all of this. Because it lets you also frame conversations 
in a way that can be much more palatable to other folks who need uh, to hear these things. If you, for instance, need to go in and say, hey, we need to change this UI feature because people aren't using it and it's creating friction. And so this is, you know, this is creating a problem for our users. The minute you use sort of a negative word like problem, the person who designed that or the person who implemented that or whomever is immediately going to kind of go a little defensive on it. That's just the nature of the beast. We we see this all the time in all kinds of fields. You know, anytime something quote unquote doesn't work or is broken, you know, I, I hate those words. I hate thinking, oh, this thing is broken. No, it may not be optimal. But it's not necessarily broken in some cases, or the idea that something could be improved doesn't mean that something was broken or bad. But framing something as noise creates a different kind of conversation, and it creates one that elevates these issues out of a technical space as well, in my opinion. If you approach these things like... You sit down with your team, you've got your content person, you've got your UX researcher, you've got your back-end dev, and you sit down and you say, okay, so we've been looking at you know, our user research, our user journeys, how things operate on the page, and one thing we've discovered in talking to those folks is that this thing is actually creating noise for them, that you know, it's, it's something that makes it harder for them to do, you know, X, Y, or Z. And again, harder is a, a tough word. It's borderline in that negative space. But you can you can frame those things as, you know, the fact that there's noise there isn't necessarily the fault of the designer or the fault of the developer at that point. It's a byproduct of the experience that everybody created. And so now we can have a conversation about, well, how would we reduce that? Well, we could make the modal smaller. Oh, we could make the buttons different colors. Oh, we could take this giant picture off that pushes everything down. Or we can make that picture smaller, for instance. And so you can start having conversations that open up the discussion, not about, well, why did you build it that way? Or, or why did you make the design look like this? That's such a hard thing to sit down with Figma and a designer and be like, oh, I can't believe you made this, man. Now, obviously, we would never say it like that. But that's sort of the tone that can come across, though, when a designer is trying to say, well, I want you to build this thing, but you know that that approach isn't good for reasons X, Y, and Z, for instance. And so we have to find softer ways to have those conversations because I don't want to tell you you were wrong or you did it bad. It's a case of they didn't know what they didn't know. or you know, they don't have the benefit of the experience, you know, from the user side that you may know from research or data that you've collected over time. And so instead, we can frame this all around the noise created and say, can we do something to reduce that? Can we do something to make sure there's nothing in the way of this message? Oh, you want to come in here and put this big video carousel at the top. I see what you're doing there. Have we thought about the noise this creates it, that gets in the way of the content below it. And are we concerned about that? Now you can have that open dialogue. Now you can sit down and, and start to find ways to make this about the user journey and about the user experience. And if you have a UX designer on your team, 
they will love this. This is the kind of thing that, like, this is the empowering moment for a UX uh, designer to say, ah, I see, or to, you know, this is something we can research and we can know, we can collect this data, or you can go to them and say, hey, we think there may be an issue with noise on our channel here because we have added these things or we have this tool that has to query this other stuff, but it's really slow as a result. Can we do something to reduce the noise that that causes? It's about improving that experience. And then what do we get to? The byproduct of that gets us one step closer to frictionless design. So now, oh, that latency isn't as, isn't as sticky as, as it was before. It gets you down to these moments of just softness in your approach. The other thing that starts to happen when you start thinking about the phrases like do less better, yes, you're reducing that noise. And I said earlier, like an, a, a site that has only what it needs is much easier to test. It's much easier to you know try different things or measure success or failure. The other thing, when you do less better, you minimize the opportunity for things to also go wrong. You're setting yourself up. It's, you know, it's a case of the more complex a system is, the more APIs, the more form fields, the more steps a user has to go through, the more everything they have to deal with, the more photos they have to flip through, the more videos they have to listen to. All of that is opportunity for noise. And when you resist that urge to put all the extraneous stuff on there, you start minimizing that to go back to our eBay page. What could we do? Like, let's, let's assume eBay is willing to reduce noise in their design. And we say the first thing you should do is get rid of all of these sponsored item carousels before the description. And they say, okay, we take that out. And so you go right from the header of the item straight to the description of the item. Now, when we start talking about, well, we're going to add something to the page. We're going to, you know, oh, we should we should definitely have sponsored stuff below it, though. But that opportunity for noise has been reduced because adding it afterwards doesn't damage the user experience as much as having it beforehand. Leaving those carousels in there before the description means there is opportunity to do more with the carousels. And that's the completely antithetical thing that you should be thinking about. There's no way to make those things better. There's no way to make them more useful because they are not solving that user's problem. They are not answering that user's question or helping them do the thing they want to do, which is potentially buy that item. Those are nothing but opportunities for noise. And the next thing that's going to happen is, okay, they're sponsored items, and now we're going to add in the ability for somebody to literally put an advertisement in there. We're going to make the pictures bigger. We're going to hide the prices. We're going to do all of these different things. Well, anything you're doing to those carousels is just adding noise. So if we can pare down those experiences and get them as small as we feel comfortable with, then we've minimized the opportunity for future noise. This is another reason also why there's a phrase called ADR. Um, ADRs are really helpful for this over time. It stands for architectural design records. And so as people come and go from an organization over time, these create breadcrumbs. So you can say, you can have an actual ADR that outlines, we took out these two sponsored item carousels. 
because we wanted to reduce the noise, make sure users saw the description for the item they were on immediately. We tested it and determined that users were 10% more likely to buy that item, if that's the case. And now you codify that in an ADR. And after everybody from that team is long gone and new people come in and somebody says, you know, we have an opportunity to put a sponsored item carousel in between this and that. Well, there's an ADR they can reference and go back and say, oh, yeah, but it looks like we actually made the decision to not do that because while those sponsored items end up generating a nickel per view or whatever, the fees we get from increasing sales by 10% is much more than that or something. You know, this is purely hypothetical, obviously. But ADRs create a good way of documenting why you simplified it, what those outcomes were, what the problems were that uh, that motivated you to solve that, and it creates institutional memory then so that people don't repeat the sins of the past because that's also one of those very hard things to resist when you're large or small. You know, if you work at a place where you're the only web developer and you're making all those decisions and you're comfortable you, and you're saying, Michael, I, I am 100% in. I love this model. I love this approach. We're going to do it. And then you go on to another job in two years and they bring in somebody else and that person just says, well, I'm going to do it my way. I don't know what this guy was talking about. Let's slap all this stuff on. There's nothing there to stop that. There's nothing for anybody, for any project manager or owner to go to and look at and say, oh, yeah, these decisions were made intentionally and they were made for good reasons. So that's this idea of, of Shannon Weaver. It gets into a lot of areas. It's a very academic subject. I say the original model of Shannon and Weaver was really meant to apply to a very phone centric infrastructure and a very technical problem that they were having. But it makes for a model that applies so well to what we do here. It's very simple. Is it deficient in some ways? Without a doubt. But so is every other communication model. Not every model applies everywhere. And I've already mentioned how like, I disagree with how some folks would apply this to the web. I think the sender is the person creating content. The receiver is the person consuming that content. The message is what is being sent across the web page. The channel is just the internet at large. And then we have the encoder decoder, which is the web browser. So, and as an example here too, the encoder decoder, a lot of folks will call the encoder the switches and the network infrastructure. And I, I don't think that's the right way to model it. I think the encoder decoder is the browser. Um, and, and I mean, the I should clarify, the encoder can be all the web infrastructure. The decoder is, is where I'm specifically saying the browser is, is the role. And then you have the noise. And the noise is everything else we do. And our job is to create noise. That's the truth. But when you make noise in a strategic harmonious manner you actually get music it's when you're offbeat on all of that it's when you you know are literally just banging pots together that it gets annoying and so we can make noise that is beautiful and goal-driven and user-centric but we need a way to anchor it so think on that for a little while i'm going to take a quick break and be right back So I hope that was interesting. I know we don't do the solo sort of approach to an episode very often, but this was um, an opportunity for me to kind of go on a rant a little bit and, and talk about something that I really enjoy and love. 
um, and, and this conversation about communications, people, how people talk to people. Um, it's so important that we never let go of that and forget that just because we're behind monitors all day, man, we're still building things that we're still building things for people to consume with other people, whether it's a social media site, a recipe site or a place to sell stuff. All of this really matters, and we have to keep those people close to us. So let me know what you think. Let me know if you actually believe another communication model is better. Let me know if you have a way of defining the Shannon Weaver model that you think is more unique or more interesting or useful in those cases, because there's no right or wrong answer. This is all theory. This is all philosophy and the application of it. And so I would love to have a bigger conversation with folks if you have any interest as always, we are on Twitter and Facebook at slash DrunkenUX. That's a great place to find us. You can also join us on our Discord server. It's DrunkenUX.com slash Discord. Drops you right in. If you are a Patreon backer, you do get a special role in our uh, our Discord server as well. You can back us by going to DrunkenUX.com slash Discord. I think those are all the things. I think those are all the places. That's all the important stuff. Except, stay tuned. Next Monday, we will be dropping another new episode of Build Process. I promised more of that this year, and it will be coming on the way on our off Monday once a month. So be on the lookout for build process. Um, Aaron is taking that on, so it won't be me. So you don't have to listen to me two weeks in a row. Um, He has a special guest lined up that I don't want to spoil just yet. Uh, Otherwise, I'm going to invite everybody to consider communication models, consider your websites, think about how noise plays into it, and how the way we build things can be beautiful or not is your design frictionless is your design inclusive is it accessible these things really matter because when we get down to brass tacks we are either doing the best we can to keep our personas close and our users closer as we can or we're not and if we're not doing it for the people then what are we doing it for chew on that let me know what you think Have a great week. Start it off right. I appreciate everybody tuning in, and I will see you later.